G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. I'm John and joining me is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of The Moses Scroll. That's themosesscroll.com, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you? Doing pretty well. Thank you, my friend. Hey, um, it's been a little while since we've recorded. We've been interrupted over the last couple of weeks, but you brought to my attention a little while ago a, um, a video that Tovia put on his Facebook page and yeah. shared around, splashed around, and uh, and said, hey, check this out. So I went and had a look at this, and g'day to Tovia. We're going to be meeting up with him in, what, less than a month? It's not long. I think long. we're going to catch it's up with him in, in Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, we conduct the Tanakh tour every November with your fine self and Rabbi Tovia Singer. We'll be doing that again, of course, this coming, not this November as we're passing through it. We should be there right now. That's right. Uh, but next November 2022, people can join us. There is room on the bus, and you can do that by going to tanakhtours.com. All right, well, there's a link below this post. Okay, so uh, that video was uh, Tovia encountering a missionary in Jerusalem. I think it was on the corner of uh, Yafo and uh, Ben Yehuda. Kind of yep, looked familiar. Yep. And there was a, a missionary who was shouting at everyone and so on and so forth. And Tovia, you know, does, does his thing. And there was a, a video that I thought was, you know, I'll share that. And it sparked, <laughs> sometimes things do, you know, you put it on Facebook and it just sort of uh, disappears. But sometimes you'll share something on Facebook and it just explodes into conversation, which is that great. That really this was did. One of, I saw that. I mean, all the <laughs> comments, my goodness. It was really cool. And actually, um, shout out to Stephen Lewis. Stephen Lewis is the, um, he's actually from New Jersey, I think, if I if I remember correctly. Okay. And he is the new, uh, uh, he is the, let's say now, the Old Testament, head of Old Testament, I think, at the Reformed Theological College in Melbourne. I hope I've got all that right. Okay. Um, and he lives not far from here. He's a few blocks from me. And um Nice guy. I've met yeah. him. Super nice guy. But he, he commented on that, and off we went. We started playing, you know, the, the, the chess game that you play, you know, when you're, um, uh, the polemic, you know, between Judaism and Christianity and so on and so forth. So that was fun. Right. Um, in in that thread, Joel, g'day to Joel. Hello. I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Joel uh, decided to ask a question. It was related, and um, but it plays directly into what you and I are going to talk about today. Okay. So I thought I'd read it out. And, and you'll know uh, where I'm going. All right. Joel Let's asked see. this question. He says, If in Ezekiel 18.20, mm-hmm. the son shall not, be, and he's quoting, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Then how, he says, if the context of this is an absolute, does this resolve with Exodus 34, 7, Numbers 14, 19, and Deuteronomy 5, 9, where it states God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations? Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes on, he says, um, take specifically the sin of idolatry, for example, where it is clear that this particular sin can still carry across multiple generations. So how can this be resolved with uh, the prophet in, in Ezekiel eighteen twenty? Uh, and he, he goes on to, to cite further, you know, passages in, in Daniel and in Nehemiah and says, you know, there's some, the, the point that he's making is that there's some real, uh, we have some passages that seem to indicate X, and yep. yet we also have some passages that indicate Y. And yep. X and Y seem to create a contradiction. And, uh, you know, there are some, and I'm sure you're aware, there's in Christian fundamental circles and 
uh, Jewish fundamentalist circles, there's, you know, you can spin these to kind of try and make them work together. Right. But the reason why this is a question is because they do seem so clear and they do seem to contradict. And people often wrestled with them as, as I have, you know, for, I'd say, decades, I think, going back and forth, trying to find a satisfactory answer uh, to this. And what we find ourselves in is in the canonical text. We're talking about the first commandment in Exodus and, and uh, in Deuteronomy. And in the Moses scroll, uh, it, it deals with the commandment that we're dealing with today. Now, before I read that, Mm-hmm. How shall we do this? Do you want to go to the commandment, the first commandment, as it appears in Exodus and Deuteronomy? Where where shall we go from here? Okay, well that's that's a lot. I mean that that's a lot to uh, to decide. But but let's first mm. let's take just a few minutes. And some of the listeners are quite familiar with what you're talking about the uh, possibility that we have two conflicting ideas here that one, uh, a person's responsible for their own actions and that action can't be passed on to another generation. And then there's mm-hmm. the other group of texts which suggests the other. So can we talk just about that just for just a few moments and maybe line out a couple of things? Or or is that going yeah, too no, far I, off the, the course of what you want no, to no, do? No, I, no, I'm, I'm liking that. So I think I think that's what we have to do because, and I, I'll tell you what, I am going to read it. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, and particularly verse 9, okay. and when it comes to Exodus chapter 20, it's verse 5, uh, it, it's talking about the sin of idolatry is the first commandment, and it says, You shall not bow down to them, you shall not worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing, I've got in this translation, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. I don't like this translation. It really is yeah. uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons mm-hmm. to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Yep. And uh, and it says, now, now let me ask you this question. Right. Because uh, you've right. really dealt with this in, in depth. Uh, comparing Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the first commandment, are they identical in this case? Are there differences? Now, the reason why I ask you this question is because you have an excellent document that you created uh, that compares the two. Uh, accounts of the Ten Commandments and shows uh, all the differences that exist. And there's people would be surprised. Um, I wonder if there's any great significant difference between uh, Deuteronomy and Exodus in regards to the first commandment, first of all, what he got. Okay, so quickly, based on the the document that you're talking about, that is very helpful, and it's in English, but it's my translation, and I'm very consistent between the two. People might debate mm. whether or not I translated... Uh, the way that they would like to see it. But if I translate it in one verse one way, then in the other I do it the same. In other words, there are a couple of differences that I want to point out. Number one, the word generation doesn't occur in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. I'm not going to solve this problem. Uh, But I Mm -hmm. will say that people say, because their translation typically says, to the third and fourth generations for one hating me. But generation, toledote, if you will, doesn't occur in either one. It just says, upon the third and upon the fourth. Now, you you Mm. might say, well, that clearly means the third and fourth generation, the sons and grandsons, if you will. Uh, but, But it doesn't say that. So let's keep it strictly by what it says. Deuteronomy adds... 
the word and, which is represented in Hebrew by a vav. This is how accurate this yep. comparison is. So it says in mm-hmm. Exodus, upon the third and the fourth, whereas Deuteronomy says, and upon third and upon fourth, okay? The okay, only okay. other difference between the two is in Exodus, it's presented as God speaking first person. He says, and doing loving kindness to thousands for one's loving me and for one's guarding my commands, whereas Deuteronomy says his commands. It's third person. Ah, very good. Now, oh, well spotted. Okay. Now, just, just before yep. you go on, um, yep. this particular document, is this available on your academia page? It is. Yep. That's In fact, that's the easiest place to find it, and uh, we can post that link so that people can go to this document. It's very helpful. It's okay. in English, and uh, so helpful. anybody can use it. Yeah. Right. All right. Go ahead. Now, what I was going to say is, this idea, that the way that we read this, and I don't know that there's another way you can read it, is that to associate one who commits idolatry uh, in any form is subject to this idea of the, the penalty, if you will, passing mm-hmm. down to the third and fourth, assuming that means mm-hmm. generations. I think that's a fair assumption. Uh mm-hmm. But then, you know, the grace extended is the other side of that to the thousandth generation. Now, here's the thing. I don't know of anyone who takes that part literally binding that if you, Jono, love God, that for a thousand generations, that's a long time, Mm. that uh, God's going to do loving kindness to thousands uh, of generations, if you will, uh, for the ones who love him and guard his commands, would you? I mean, and yet we're very strict on the other to assume that it means that the penalty passes three, maybe four generations. Okay. Mm. Now, I think that there were people even in antiquity which took that to heart. So we've got to look at a couple of other verses where I think the biblical writers are trying to make it clear that that's not the case. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children Mm -hmm. be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, someone may say, well, you're not really, that's apples and oranges. Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 aren't really talking about the death of a violator. Eh, So I don't know. But the same idea seems to be conveyed Elsewhere, like our our person, like Stephen brought up, or was it uh, Joel who brought this up in the notes? Uh, Joel asked the question. Okay, Joel asked the question, yeah. So to Joel's point, you do have, uh, not only do you have in Ezekiel 18, uh, but you have a couple of other passages. Now, strictly in terms of Deuteronomy 24, 16, there's a passage in 2 Kings 14, 6, where a king knows this rule, so he doesn't put a certain person to death because of this particular rule in Deuteronomy 24. I think most people are familiar with that. Now, the other passage that I wanted to bring up, because this came about because of a debate between a Jewish person and a Christian person. Now, a Christian Mm -hmm. will, in most forms of Christianity, believe that a person, namely Jesus of Nazareth, can die for sins that another person create uh, committed. Right. 
Now, what's so interesting is they, they will tell you this is because we're part of a new covenant, and the new covenant has this stipulation. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I think in the Gospels we get a couple of episodes where he talks about this is for the, the cup of the new covenant and so forth. Now, the thing that I wanted to bring up is from Deut- uh, Jeremiah 31. Everyone knows that we get from the Tanakh the only real accurate, absolutely precise mention of a new covenant. Uh, The Mm -hmm. one that's most often used is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know the passage. See, a time is coming uh, when I'll make a new covenant. Okay, right before that, right before that, the verse that appears exactly before that says, In those days, they will no longer say, Parents have eaten sour grapes and children's teeth are put on edge, but mm. everyone will die for his own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge, or some translations read blunted or whatever. Mm. The idea is the same as what we encounter in Deuteronomy 24, and Ezekiel. 16, Ezekiel And 18. Ezekiel 18, because it opens with that very um, proverb. Uh, it says, uh, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel that the fathers eat sour grapes and the son's teeth are set on edge? As I live, uh, it, it, God goes on to say in Ezekiel, um, this is the de- declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Uh, and it goes on. Uh, look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Mm-hmm. They both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. So, uh, according to the book of Ezekiel, God is refuting this this uh, this proverb that is common in Israel. Russ. Exactly. And and in in Ezekiel, one of the things that it does is really spell this out. So Joel knows scripture. Joel is going to the scripture and saying, "Hey, mm, what do we do about does. this?" And if you think about it. The the really powerful thing about Ezekiel 18 is that it gives you plenty of examples. And I'm paraphrasing. Let's say the dad is a good guy and the kid's bad. Is the dad held accountable for the son? No. What? Let's say that it's the other way around. You know, it gives you all of these examples. But mm. the bottom line is the person who sins, that person is accountable. You, you mm-hmm. can't be held accountable for someone else's sin or crime against God. And I think that that's demonstrated very clearly throughout Scripture. And I just wanted to make the point that if someone thinks it changes with a new covenant, they need to understand that Jeremiah, or you could say the Lord through Jeremiah, wants to mm-hmm. make it clear in the context of the new covenant that if anything, it's if you thought that it meant that sins can be covered by one person for the for someone else, that's not the case in the New Covenant. So mm. I think it's important to line that out. Now, it, it could be, that leaves us with a question that I don't know that I can resolve. Was it understood properly that originally a, a person could inherit uh, the the recourse of someone above them in the line who committed a sin, or was was that just a misunderstanding and the prophets are later trying to line that out? Uh, again, Deuteronomy 24, 16 tries to line it out very soon. Mm-hmm. Then, then we just have to decide, or... Um, uh, or was it never the case? Maybe it was, it was misunderstood from the beginning. Is that fair? Sure. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's fair. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and again, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a question that that continues to uh, pop up for students of the Bible, like Joel, mm-hmm. because it seems to clearly be saying X here and clearly be saying Y here, and they seem to be clashing. And when God says in in uh, in Ezekiel chapter eighteen. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? It's almost as if you want to say to God, well, what do you mean by what you said in the first commandment? Yeah, that's right. Have we got that wrong? Can you iron this out for us? Because, yeah, Ross. Yeah. And and so one of the things that we're looking at is you, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I'm glad that you did. In the canonical text, this phrase occurs in the first commandment. But, Jono, you and I have been going through this series on the Shapira manuscript mm-hmm. uh, for quite some time, and and we're not at word number one anymore. We have long uh-huh. passed word number one. So one of the things that we'll get into in just a moment is the fact that this phrase does occur in a similar form in the Shapira scrolls mm-hmm. uh, or the Shapira manuscripts, but it is affixed to another. And I'm I'm referring to the point about uh, the fathers and the sons, the third and the fourth. It does occur. It just occurs elsewhere. Now, one other thing I want to point out before we jump into this, uh, Jono, is because of Edan Dershowitz's work, uh, The Valediction of Moses, he discovered something that I didn't know existed when I wrote the Moses Scroll, and it's very, very important, and I'm glad he saw it or found it. Mm. Mm. Uh, When I wrote the Moses Scroll, all I had was the transcription of Goethe and Meyer uh, that was done in Germany the first week of July, 1883. And then Mm -hmm. I had the transcription published by Christian David Ginsburg, which was produced uh, during the month of August, 1883, in England at the British Museum. So I Mm -hmm. did everything I could to provide an accurate, representation of what those three 19th century specialists saw Mm -hmm. when they looked at the scroll fragments. Now, what Dershowitz found in a a book that was found at the Berlin State Library, at the Staatsbibliothek, was just shuffled through the pages, not in order. In fact, they're actually reversed. Three pages written with purple ink by the hand of Moses Shapira himself. And mm-hmm. these three pages covered uh, from the beginning of the manuscript strips through where we are right now today. And the reason mm-hmm. I'm bringing this up now is because Shapira's transcription ends at the bottom of the third page. It's all that we have, that we know that has survived from 1883. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it ends with the phrase, upon the fathers, I believe. So it it doesn't even say to the third and the fourth. We only know of this from Gutta Meyer, uh, their transcription, and from Ginsburg. Shapira stops Mm -hmm. here. Now, we're ready to jump into, where is this? In the Shapira manuscript, we're in strip E. Now, strip E was one of 16 leather strips. It consisted of four uh, leather, co- four columns on leather of a section of text that contained the Shema 
and the 10 words where we are now. So this is, we're in E, fragment E, column D, and uh, and that's where we're at. Now, what commandment are we dealing with tonight, Jono? What, what number? That's right. Well, I'm just trying to figure that one out of my head. But before, we, I'll tell you what, why don't you count? And while you're doing that, let me just again read. Uh, I, I just want to read these in a row so it's fresh in everybody's head. Okay. I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy 5. The first commandment as it appears there. Um, not a huge amount of difference as it appears in Exodus, as, as you pointed out. There are some differences. but um, it, And I'm going to pick up from verse 6, I guess. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, uh, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord, and here I really want to emphasize this bit, I for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing thousands, uh, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, who love me and keep my commandments. Now, mm-hmm. that's how it appears uh, with the text that everybody's familiar with. This is how the first commandment appears in the Moses scroll. All right. I am... I am Elohim, your Elohim, who liberated you from the land of Egypt, from the house of servitude. There shall not be to you other Elohim. You shall not make for yourselves a carved thing or any formed thing which is in the heavens above or which is on the earth below. You shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them. I am Elohim, your Elohim. And as we know, each commandment is signed off by God with I am Elohim, your Elohim. That's where that ends. It doesn't go on to say, because I am jealous of, of your uh, uh, worship, and, and if you bow down to other gods, well, I'm going to be uh, punish the father and, to, and the sons to the third and the fourth and so on and so We don't have that right. in the Moses scroll. Now, what, what number are we up to, Ross? We, tonight's class, the, the one that we're going through in this episode, is number seven in the, the Shapira manuscripts. Right. So, so we're already to number seven. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do is point out a slight difference in the way I published uh, or I translated in my translation, and then I want to give uh, Edan's as well, and we can talk about a slight difference there. Some might yep. uh, benefit from this. You ready? Go for it. Okay. So I'm looking at the Hebrew when I publish this, and I put, You shall not swear by my name to deceive, because I'm passionate. The iniquity of fathers will be upon children unto a third and unto a fourth generation. I did the same thing and explained in the notes what other translations Mm -hmm. have done. For lifting my name to deceive. I am Elohim, your Elohim. Now, the main difference is uh, that Edan treats a certain thing that I said I am passionate. He identifies this as a verb. He says, you shall not swear in my name falsely, for I shall Mm -hmm. avenge... The, the transgression of fathers against sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons for those who bear my name falsely. I am Elohim, your God. Now, mm. the, the main difference I point out, some of it's stylistic, uh, but, but the main thing is he treats uh, Aleph, Kof, Nun, Aleph as a verb, okay? 
mm-hmm. that's the main difference. I'm going to look at something here in in his yeah Aleph Kuf uh, Noon Aleph because we're looking at the same thing. We're looking at a root Kof Noon Aleph, and that root means uh, jealous or zealous or passionate. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the first thing we need to do is try to figure this piece out. And and this might take just a moment. If you're okay, I'll go through a couple of the verses that use this. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, can I, can I just throw yeah, in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump I guess in. You're, you're going Jump to say in. this, but so in the, as you pointed out, in the Hebrew, the iniquity, iniquity is the object of the sentence, is, is indicated by the et preceding it. So we know that that is, in, in the Moses scroll, iniquity is the object of the sentence, therefore... Um, the verb is will avenge, as Idan has it. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, the the verb serving in the canonical text is visiting. The word visiting. That's right. Uh, so go ahead. Go okay, ahead. just a couple. Uh, one of the things that that I want to show is that there is one touch, one point of congruence uh, when we deal with Kana between what we see in the Moses scroll and what we see in the canonical. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and that is that both use kana. Now, I was led in the direction I went, which I've corrected since based on Edan's work, but mm. I was read, I was led into the idea that I was because in the canonical text, it says, don't do this, don't commit adultery, uh, idolatry, basically, because I, Jehovah, your Elohim, am a zealous or jealous God, all right? Mm. So, kana, kof nun aleph, does appear there. So, it's very, very uh, likely that in my mind, I immediately associated the use of kana with this idea of jealousy and zealousness. Yeah, because we're already right? we're already preconditioned by the first commandment in, in Deuteronomy and Exodus. I did exactly the same thing, and when I read it, uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting that this appears, okay, in the seventh commandment, but it still appears this idea of what um, the, uh, the Jewish study Bible refers to as vicarious punishment, I think. Yeah. And uh, and I was surprised by that. And I thought, wow, how am I supposed to, how are we supposed to brain this exactly? Because there is this friction that Joel points out. Uh, although it's applied to a different commandment, it still exists in the Moses scroll. And I found that puzzling and, again, I was trying to find solutions to the problem. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I fell into the same trap that you did. Go ahead. And, and so one of the other things that I did was I associated the Aleph on the beginning as, as some, somehow uh, it was perhaps intending to say, I am jealous or I am zealous. And we know that we have passages in the Bible where God says, that's my name. Uh, Exodus thirty four fourteen. For you shall worship no other God... For Jehovah, whose name is Kana, actually it mm. says Kana Shemo. El Kana is He, and that's the mm. El Kana is what we see in another place that I just referenced in Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five. So we get it. Also, I'll just go through the verses so people can look them up. Deuteronomy four twenty four, Deuteronomy six fifteen, and Joshua uh, twenty four nineteen. Now. Mm. One other verse that I want to look at, uh, let me pull this up. I think it's Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Um, yeah, they have made me 
jealous. Kanati, they have made me jealous uh, with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, the reason I bring this text up, Jono, is because this is one of the things that uh, that makes me support, A, uh, Edan's reading. Mm-hmm. So this particular passage, in the place where it says in English, I will make them jealous, the word there is Aleph Kof Nun Yud Aleph Mim. It's from the right. same exact form, even though it's it has the, the third person plural ending on it, right? The third masculine plural ending of the mem. But if you take that off and you remove the yud, I know I'm getting a little bit technical, but some people will be able to follow this. A lot of our listeners Mm -hmm. are are Hebrew students. Remember, in the Moses scroll, uh, they don't use the internal vowels uh, like you would find in the Masoretic text, which is presumably later. Mm. But this is the same form. So now... Some could argue that Edan's translation of I shall avenge the transgression may not be exactly the word they would choose, but the idea, I think, is supported by the text. So at least we have that mm. right now. And uh, We do. And, yep. and let me throw into the mix, by the way, um, th- this was one of the passages, again, that uh, really bothered me before we arrived at Edan's uh, translation. Uh, or transcript, well, translation, and I threw it out to Yoel, Yoel Halevi, mm-hmm. uh, our, our good friend in uh, Kiryat Hatzah in in uh, Israel. Uh, Hebrew in Israel is his website, right? Yeah, he, Hebrewinisrael.com? Yeah, let me just say, .net. Go ahead. He, he, .net. Is, uh, he is a Hebrew scholar, and so mm. it was important for us to consult him and say, what do you think about this, you know? Mm. So what now, do you should, should be... Well, um, straight up, I mean, Yoel said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't see this as a, um, you know, he he doesn't hold the same view as we do in regards to the Moses Scroll, right. which is absolutely fine. But being the awesome guy that he is, he said, but you know, um, let me throw this out to the team. Mm-hmm. So he put it out mm-hmm. to uh, to a bunch of people and said, what do you make of this? And my question specifically was just just to be clear, because my Hebrew is not that good, as you know, if the word iniquity here has an et preceding it, yep. which makes it the object of the sentence, then what is the verb? So uh, so I threw it out to Yoel. Yoel threw it out to the team. And one of them came back and said, well, the verb is um, be jealous. I will yep. be jealous. That's, right. That is the verb. <clears throat> or as as uh, Idan has said, uh, will avenge. Yep. Um, first person, future tense. And so they uh, they came back with that, and so it wasn't unusual to come to that conclusion, and this is where we find ourselves. Yep, the, very good. And I'm glad that you really pushed this issue, and, and I think all of us learned something from it, and we don't have to agree, and, and others don't have to agree with us about the, the validity of the, the manuscript, but mm. at least we now know, hey, this is exactly what it's saying. So we've got that straight. Now, here's the next part that we need to think about. This idea of you shall not swear by my name falsely or to deceive mm-hmm. is found nowhere in the canonical ten words. Mm. It's it's just not there. So, 
Now, it does, this particular word of our 10 words in the Shapira manuscripts, it, it actually does have some uh, places of congruence, as we talked about this phrase, yes. uh, you know, about the iniquity of the fathers and so forth, and the idea of uh, lifting the name. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But here's one thing that I should point out. There is a, uh, a match for what we see in the Shapira manuscripts in the canonical Pentateuch. And that passage is Leviticus 19.12. Hmm. So that is uh, almost an exact match. And let's go there, Leviticus 19.12. Go ahead. In Leviticus 19.12, it says, Velotishavu uh, bishmi lasheker. No and no and you shall not plural and ye shall not as the old english would say swear mm. in my name falsely or to deceive or for falsehood and then mm. it it goes on from there but that's interesting because we've encountered uh, other examples in the Shapira manuscript which seem to align and we are not finished with that congruence uh, between the Leviticus 19 in the Holiness Code and what we find in the Shapira manuscript. So I just right. wanted to bring that up. That That's a match. Uh, it's, mm. it's, it clearly aligns well with what we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Mm. Um, let me ask you this question, because there's uh, other passages that I found interesting uh, in regards to I am passionate and just... Uh, cross-referencing uh, Exodus 34, 14, says uh, Jehovah, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous L, um, in uh, a jealous God. And in Ezekiel, back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 39, 25b, I will be jealous for my holy name. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder to myself, is there a, um, uh, is this bouncing off? this particular commandment as it appears in the Moses scroll. It is interesting. Yes, it, it is interesting. Now, one one point is that if you look at Shapira, uh, the manuscript has this idea of not swearing by the name to deceive, and then, mm-hmm. it, then it has this idea we'll talk about in a few moments, but it also says to lift for those who lift my name for a lie. Now, Mm. people who know the 10 words from the canonical text will recognize that that in and of itself is a separate word or commandment in the canonical 10 words. Uh, It's number two on the list, or three, depending on how you count it, right? You shall not lift the name Mm. Jehovah your Elohim for falsehood, because Jehovah will not clear one who lifts his name for falsehood. You you remember that? That's one of the... Mm. And, and I think it's typically translated in most translations in English as, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. But the idea mm. there is, don't lift it. It's, it's the same wording, basically, as in uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy yeah. 5, as we see in uh, the Shapira manuscript. Now, let me point out a couple of differences. Uh, when you look at uh, the two, in, in Shapira's manuscript, it says, Lamed, Nun, Shin, Aleph, Yud. But it's based on this idea 
of of lifting like you see the same thing basically in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 in the passages sure. don't li- no you shall lift lotisa uh, tav shin aleph i'm looking at a chart here so it, it's not as handy for people who are trying to imagine you have to go to the text and see it um okay i'm ready i'm ready to move on i think i just uh, well well before we move on from there let me let me ask you something while we're there because um in exodus and, and deuteronomy it records following that the lord will not clear naka the lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name mm-hmm. and it, it it seems to be trying to recall that which is found in the in the moses scroll the lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name but the the moses scroll records that which follows the prohibition of idolatry in exodus and, and Deut- deuteronomy and we've already talked about that in deuteronomy naka it appears only in 511 where I just read from, but it's not uncommon throughout the Tanakh. And and I found it also interesting that in Joel 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 21, or chapter 4, 21 in the Hebrew, this verse is commonly translated as, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. Right. Uh, Nikati, Nikati. And that is, that word finds its root in Naka. And it, it seems like, uh, it's trying to once again capture that which is written in the Moses scroll, Ross. Yeah, and and just so people know this this word that you're talking about, naka, it it can mean uh, it, it it's associated with the idea of innocence. So mm. so when the English says I will not clear, it's basically saying I won't declare innocent one who does this whatever follows. Now, one other thing is that the lifting of the name, whether a person uh, translates it that literally or they say uh, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain, that's a little bit confusing. The original idea seems to be that to lift the name is to swear. So in other words, you you say, Jono, I'm going to do such and such. But if Mm. I want to swear, now a lot of people think that swearing is prohibited. That that really comes to us uh, from the Second Temple period. We find it in rabbinic right. literature. We find it in the Christian Gospels. Uh, and and I'm not suggesting that it's a good idea to just frivolously... I, I think people need to be very careful with their words, particularly when they're making an mm. oath or they're swearing. But to lift the name is where you would include the name and say, Jono, I'm going to do such and such. And then I do I make an oath and I include the name of God. This is what it's cautioning against. If you're mm. going to do that, uh, if you're going to swear in the name, you better fulfill that, right? Because right, right. we we know from two places, by the way, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, uh, Deuteronomy six thirteen. Look at that. Let's go there because I think people might want to know this. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 13 says, uh, It is uh, Jehovah, your God, uh, that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name, or in his name, you shall swear. Mm. So that's, uh, and in fact, it says, Uvishmo, uh, and in his name, Tishavea, uh, you shall swear. Mm-hmm. So there is the command to swear. There's one other. Look at both of these, by the way, are in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. And Mm -hmm. and there it says, You shall fear Jehovah your God. You shall serve him 
hold fast to him, and in his name or by his name you shall swear. So the idea so that well the 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 problem is not it's not forbidden to swear in the name. It's mm. forbidden to swear in the name falsely. And by the way, right. I, I have another article on my academia page that's called Swearing by the Name of Jehovah. I use YHVH. Uh, and mm-hmm. that particular document gives many, many examples of not only how this was uh, believed to be the case, that you could, in fact, swear by the name so long as you did it uh, in honesty and you weren't doing it falsely. Mm-hmm. And then it gives examples of, of what that looks like. So what we find is throughout the Tanakh, we have cases where people would literally swear by the name. And mm. typically, uh, that is represented by a phrase, um, yod Hey vav Hey associated with uh, chai, lives. So right. you're basically yeah. saying, as the Lord lives, or if someone uses the name, as Jehovah lives, this or that. Right. It, it yes. means, I am making this declaration... And I am lifting God's name and associating his name with my oath. Right, yes. That's not to be taken lightly, but it's not forbidden. It's not forbidden. And and it, what, what we're to understand from this, or this is, this is what I get from this, is that his name is something that he owns, that he gives us, um, and we're at, at liberty to use it. But what he, what he will not tolerate is if we lift his name in order to... Um, uh, deceive or perpetuate a deception. So uh, let me just read the commandment again. Okay. Uh, let me just. So this is as it appears in in the Moses scroll, and this is the uh, not as it appears as you pointed out in uh, the Moses scroll as you translated it, but this is the updated translation. You shall not swear by my name to deceive, because I will avenge the iniquity of the fathers to the sons to a third and to a fourth for lifting my name. To deceive, I am Elohim, your Elohim. So what it seems to be saying, tell me if you think this is fair, while the son or the grandson and the great-grandson are not the origin of the iniquity, Elohim will avenge, and I suppose we could describe that as as to exact justice, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not just the father who lifted his name to deceive, but also the subsequent generations who hold or uphold or perpetuate that particular deception. Yeah. And the only reason why someone would do that, Ross, is because it is of some benefit to them. They're trying to sell something or they're trying to uh, obtain some sort of authority or some sort of power over someone or convince them of something that isn't true. And they're doing that by uh, lifting the name to give authority to what they're saying. Is that fair? That is fair. And to your point, notice that it's God who will exact the judgment yes. uh, on, yeah, on the person. So it's not like... If if we appear in a court and we make, if we lift God's name to deceive in court or something of that nature, um, you know, I, I don't know that anybody would know. I mean, if we're That's, good, yeah. if we're and good at lying and masking, right, right, and it's know. not up to the hand of man to enforce uh, this because this is this, as I say, this is God who is uh, defending. If you like, he he will avenge the misuse of his name, because this is something that he owns personally that he has given to us and allowed us to use. Now, translate that idea to the first commandment as it appears in the Masoretic text, mm-hmm. and it applies to the misdirected worship. 
And you think, well, hang on, God is is jealous. He he's going to be punishing us because we worshipped. Does he then own our worship? Is our worship something that he personally owns? And if we misdirect that, then we are subject to uh, uh, punishment. Is that the way it works? It's a little bit more difficult when you try and uh, nut that out. But when you come to the Moses scroll and you're reading from the seventh commandment, you can absolutely see that his name is something that he owns, that he has given us and something that uh, he will uphold the integrity of for us. Yeah, no, and, and I think that that's a real important distinction to be made. And and one of the things, just to underscore this idea that swearing uh, is is something that's permittable so long as it's done according to what what you know Leviticus 19 says in the canonical text, what the ten words say in the Shapira manuscript, Jeremiah chapter 4 is fascinating in this regard, I think. Uh, in verse mm. 1, if you return, O Israel, declares Hashem, uh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear, all right, this is this is our word here, as Jehovah lives is the English. In Hebrew, it says, Chai mm. Yehovah. Uh, By the way, this phrase does appear in this form in... Uh, in the Shapira manuscript, this this oath form. So it says, And if you swear, as Jehovah lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. It's important to note that if Israel does these things, return to God, yes. But how do you return? You remove detestable things, you don't waver, and... You swear in truth, justice, not to deceive. See, it's the opposite. Mm. What's the result of that, Jonah? It's clearly the promise to the patriarchs that the nations shall bless themselves in him. This is something that occurs Mm -hmm. to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, an ultimate blessing and a blessing that that transfers to the nations because Israel's doing this correctly. Now... Mm. The other side of that is to swear falsely. Now, last week I brought up something that I discovered, and it was from Zechariah chapter 5. If we can look quickly back at that, Zechariah 5, 4. Um, it, oh, yeah. It's it's interesting, especially in regards to the Shapira manuscript and not the canonical text, because Zechariah 5, 4 says, I will send it out, declares uh, the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this, as we touched on last week, is that Zechariah is making a very interesting connection. And, and I started in verse 4, but verse 3 is talking about a curse, the same context, a curse that goes over the, the land for anyone mm-hmm. who steals, uh, and for the one who swears falsely. So mm-hmm. that order, last week we did number six in our ten words, which deals with ganav, the theft, uh, larceny. And then it's followed by swearing falsely. The only place that I know of where these occur in this order is the Shapira manuscript. So the question becomes, did the prophet Zechariah know of a text uh, in which these appeared in this particular order. Mm. Now, to swear falsely by the name 
occurs in two other texts, and it's interesting. Let's look at Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 12, sorry, Jeremiah 12, verse 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even mm-hmm. as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Uh, so this is encouraging to swear in a positive sense. In a positive, yeah. Jeremiah 44, verse 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked uh, by the mm. mouth of any man in the land of Judah, saying, as the Lord God lives. So uh, that's just another passage that deals with swearing by the name and and consequences of the lack thereof, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. No, that's fair enough. And just again, just to emphasize once again, that uh, it says, I will avenge the iniquity of the fathers to the sons to the third and the fourth for lifting. And I love the way that it, that it finishes like this, for lifting my name to deceive. It doesn't just say, um, it, it, what it's not saying is that uh, if the father lifts my name to deceive, uh, well, I'll avenge the iniquity of the father to the third and the fourth generation. It doesn't do that. It says, if someone you know raises my name to deceive, Mm-hmm. I will avenge the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation uh, for lifting. It, it finishes for lifting my name to say. So in other words, if the son uh, perpetuates that deception, uh, then he's in trouble. If if the grandson or the great-grandson does so, he's going to be in trouble and he's going to experience uh, repercussions of that. And in doing so, uh, Ezekiel 18 is still valid. It still harmonizes, right? Because if it says in Ezekiel 18, if the son sees the sin of the father and he goes, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I won't be lifting the name to deceive this this particular thing that, that, that my father has perpetuated is a lie and I'm not participating in that. Uh, then it would stand to reason that he is not lifting the name to deceive. There's not going to be a problem for him. That's right. That's right. The lifting of the name is not the crime. The lifting of the name to deceive or falsely, that's the problem. And that's what brings about this idea that we're talking about in the Shapiro manuscript. Now, one other thing that I'm looking into, and I'll go ahead and say it now, even though I haven't fully fleshed this idea out. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, in the canonical version of the 10 words, uh, which we've already covered, it talks about the idea of the uh, iniquity of the fathers, the third and the fourth, and it ends, uh, it talks about those for ones hating me, all right? Now, mm. in, in Hebrew, that that is spelled Lamed, Sheen, Nun, Aleph, Yud. Uh, what I find interesting is that immediately following the canonical version that describes everything we're talking about, the passing on to the fathers, sons, and so forth, the next command or the next word is you shall not lift the name uh, for falsehood. That's the, hmm. the next commandment. The reason I bring that up, Jono, is because in Shapira's manuscript, this idea of not swearing in the name because I will avenge the iniquity of the fathers upon the son, that ends with Lamed Nun Sheen Aleph Yud. It's two letters different. It's like the letters have been inversely written uh, mm. between the two. And I wonder if somehow that's how we get what we see in the canonical version, maybe a transposition oh, of letters. And, and we huh. see this, by the way, in the Tanakh. There are examples of transposed uh-huh. letters 
We see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls too. It's a scribal mistake. Uh, it just makes me wonder because the same letters are used with just two letters swapped. Could be. So it's something to consider. Hmm. Uh, I'm still looking at that, and I'll be happy to update if I prove it or disprove it. Hey, I'll tell you what. This this is one example uh, in the 10 words where we have something which on the surface you would say, well, that's that's a commandment, if you use that phrase, that appears in Shapira's manuscript that doesn't appear in the canonical text. This one does appear in the canonical text, and what we've read and what we've covered is is that uh, it's slightly arranged differently than what we find in the Ten Words in the canonical text, in the Masoretic text, but nonetheless, it, it comes across in a very clear and concise way. Uh, mm. to, to lift the name literally does uh, have to do with swearing, and in Shapira's manuscript, the two are married together. They mm-hmm. clearly it clearly defines itself to make it very crystal clear to the person who reads it that you shall not swear in my name to deceive, and uh, that is uh, obviously associated with lifting the name to deceive. So it mm. defines itself, and we and you don't get this confusion as well. What does it mean to? use the Lord's name in vain. How many people really know what that means? When I grew up in church, I knew, yeah. you know, I had this idea that it was a certain curse word, which I still think is a bad deal, but it's it, it that's not what it meant. And mm. now now it's clear from an understanding of the biblical uh, material. Yeah, and it, and it also uh, resolves the uh, friction between the first commandment in the canonical text and, and passages like, uh, Ezekiel 18. Um, reading it uh, here, it makes much more sense. And uh, I have to say, I was really quite relieved once we got to the end of this particular um, uh, commandment and, and an appropriate uh, translation. Yes. Yeah, so what, what we really have is, I think, a more clear and concise uh, rule that is based on and similar to texts that we find in the Pentateuch, uh, it doesn't necessarily align verbatim with what we find in the Ten Words, but I think that the order is confirmed as we showed in Zechariah chapter 5, for instance. And mm. and I think that all of this evidence, even if someone might think some of it is circumstantial, it begins to build to the point where you say, mm. huh, it, uh, you know, we have first person, we have all these other clues it seems to represent a very consistent uh, ten words that is supported, uh, and I think it's uh, it represents a, a more authentic version, if you will. Once again, the Moses Scroll solves the problem, and uh, that's just grand. Now, another, if we can just jump off this just for a second, and Joel, I hope that uh, at least answers part of your your question. I think it goes a way to to cover most of it. Um, but just jumping off that, Ross, uh, in Shapira Scroll or Moses Scroll News, uh, there was an article that was released recently by Dr. James Tabor and Idan Dershowitz. Can you give us a quick rundown? Yeah, there were two that were published in this, uh, the winter edition of Biblical Archaeology Review. It's just out. It's only a days in print. And the two articles are, uh, Glenn Corbett is the new editor of Barr, and he asked two groups 
to put forward a case. Edon Dershowitz and James Tabor were asked to write the case for authenticity of the Shapira manuscript. The other article is written by Ron Hindle and Matthew Rochelle. Uh, they wrote the case for forgery. And so both mm-hmm. of those are published in Biblical Archaeology Review. People can get that magazine from their local newsstand. If they sell it, they can order it uh, or sign up for BAR, and you can, you can get it on digital and or print. But I highly encourage people to read that. In fact, I think, Jono, that by this point, both of those articles, the case for and the case against, have been published on the respective scholars' uh, academia page, so they academia can both page. be discovered. Is that true? I think I saw you posted I, one. I believe that is correct. I think I think uh, Edan has posted the article to his academia page, so you find that on Edan Dershowitz if you go there. Well worth reading. Uh, I thought both articles really were, were fascinating, so... Yep. Um, that is news. Is there any other news in, in Moses Scroll land? Uh, that's that's the main thing. I continue to work on, as, as you know, because we work on it together, the text of the Moses Scroll. We are refining it. We do intend to publish a, a new and improved revised edition because, you know, you never stop studying, you never stop learning, and you refine things and refine them. Uh, so that's in the works, and I am finishing up, hopefully in a very short term, uh, I published a version of Herman Goethe and, uh, you know, uh, Edward Myers' oh, yeah. uh, work on the scroll. They spent one week mm. on it in uh, July, uh, the first week of July, 1883, and Goethe, Herman Goethe published a work that was in German. We translated it. I published the English version of that on my Mm -hmm. academia page, and I have been working on a nice introduction that gives all the backstory, much of which is covered in the Moses Scroll, because I want to publish this work called The Leipzig Letters. I'm working now with Daniel Wright, who's going to design me a cover, and I hope Mm -hmm. that that'll be coming out very soon, so it'll be another book which includes yes. the English translation of Herman Goethe, uh, his his uh, work for the first time. The for the first time, that's right. Yeah, I, so I'm that's really coming. keen to read that. We will we'll keep people up to date uh, when that happens, and where you can buy it. Um, but we're good. I think uh, next week we can. Well, next week is next week the last one we'll be doing before we get to Israel. Maybe we can squeeze in another two. But we've got number eight, uh, commandment number eight, is where we're going to be next week. And until then, dear listeners, have a good one. Have a beautiful week.